continuing uh, to meditate on the meaning of Christmas, and our series has been doing that through looking at the lyrics of Christmas, some of our favorite Christmas carols, right? And so these carols have a lot of great theology, a lot of great truth in them, and it actually tells us what Christmas is all about. So what is Christmas? Well, a couple weeks ago, we considered that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, and so we sang. Come thou long-expected Jesus. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. Uh, Last week, the angels taught us from the realms of glory, right, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now, both of these truths, right, that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah and that He is the Savior of the world, both of those truths require that God would become a man, And that's what we're going to see this morning, is that because God became a man, because God is like us and has been made like us and has experienced everything that we have experienced, He can help us. Here's the point of the sermon. We are in need of help. God gives help. So come, all you unfaithful. We'll sing that at the end. We're in need of help. God is willing and able to help, so come. But here's the problem with why we don't come. 78% of Americans believe the Bible says God helps those who help themselves. 78% of Americans believe that the Bible teaches God helps those who help themselves. Now, it doesn't get any better because 68% of evangelicals, those that call themselves born again, 68% of them believe and agree that the Bible teaches God helps those who help themselves. The idea of God helping those who help themselves goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks, but really, we've learned it here in America from one of our founders. Benjamin Franklin, yes, we've learned it from him right from the beginning, and it fits with the American psyche, right? We are a fiercely independent people, and we are really, really bad at receiving and accepting help from others. I think it's because it insults our pride. We would much rather help someone than we would to receive or to be helped. We like to help. We just don't like to be helped. The problem starts early. If you have kids, you know that somewhere in the very beginning, they want to say, no, mom, no, dad, I can do it by myself. They really step into that strong, don't they, around two or three years old? But I don't think that we really get beyond it. I mean, just just one example, and this is kind of anecdotal, but uh, our our church has this thing called a Deacon Caring Board, and it takes an offering every month just to help those in our membership or those that you might know in our community with any kind of financial need. And often, we hear about your generosity. They have more money in that account than they actually have needs. No one is asking them for help. So I wonder if it isn't just because you've been so generous But if it also isn't, maybe in part because I don't want to ask? I don't know. So instead of looking for comfort or help from the Deacon Caring Board, we take comfort in another bit of wisdom from the age. God never gives you more than you can handle. As if that's comforting. 
Oh, look at all this stuff that's happening to me. God must think very highly of me. I mean, after all, he wouldn't give me any more than I can handle. He must think that I'm just great. Guess I better start picking up the pieces because all I have to help me is me. Now, friends, that might be motivational when it comes to a do-it-yourself project at home. That might be motivational to change the oil in your car. You know, I mean, taking personal responsibility is a good thing. Hard work does pay off, okay? Those are all good things. But what about when it comes to God? The stakes are a little higher here. This is not tying your shoe. This is not getting dressed in the morning. I can do it myself. What about when it comes to your relationship with God? Think about eternity. Do we need help when it comes to God? Well, this morning we come to the passage in Hebrews, Hebrews 4, and we're going to see that Hebrews is telling us that Jesus is the only one who can help us in our relationship with God. Jesus is able to help. He is willing to help. And he is our only help when it comes to our relationship with God. We are in need of help. So let's see the kind of help he provides and how we can benefit from it by just asking two simple questions of the text. First, let's look at verses 14 through 15, and we're going to see that Christ provides the help we need because he is our great high priest. Look at Hebrews 4, 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. We have a high priest in Jesus Christ. Now, that is a picture that the original readers would have been very familiar with. But for us, we need to stop and kind of go back and slow down and ask, here's our first question. What does it mean for Jesus to be our great high priest? Question number one, what does it mean for Jesus to be our great high priest? Right here, we see in our passage that in order for us to benefit at all, from a high priest, in order for the high priest to be of any benefit to us in our relationship with God, he must be like us and he must be unlike us. Like us and that he's going to represent us to God. Unlike us and that he's going to represent God to us. Look at verse 15 and listen to how he is like us and how he is unlike us. Verse 15 for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, here it is, like us, as we are, here he is, unlike us, yet without sin. Did you see it? In order for Jesus to be our high priest and to help us, he has to be like us, and unlike us. First, how he is like us. He stands with us. He can identify with us because the Bible says here, he has been tempted in every respect as we are. Now, obviously what that does not mean, he has not been tempted in every exact instant that you have been. Christ never experienced the temptations that are unique to motherhood. Obviously, he never experienced the temptations of old age. 
He never experienced the temptations of the escapist mentality that the internet and our cell phones offer us. Okay? So he wasn't tempted in every exact way, but what it means here is that he faced every manner of temptation that we have, that he experienced the full range of temptations that are common to all people. So in tiredness and weakness, Jesus was tempted by Satan to serve himself rather than love God when he was in the wilderness for 40 days fasting without food. In the face of lies being spread about him, Jesus was tempted by the Pharisees to prove who he really was by using his miracle, miraculous power. In emotional distress, he was tempted by Peter to avoid death. He was tempted to despondency after the betrayal of Judas. When he was insulted, reviled, mocked, beaten unjustly on the cross, he was tempted to call down legions of angels to vindicate himself instead of trust the Father when treated unjustly. Aren't all those the places that you and I are tempted? Aren't those the kinds of things that we go through? He was tempted in all of those places. He can identify with us. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So that's, that's where he's unlike us. Look at verse 15b again. We have a high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You know what that means? He never gave in. He was never defeated. The good news is he is not shouldering his own guilt. He isn't carrying the weight of his own sin. In other words, it is because he himself does not need help that now he is actually able to offer help to those that come to him. Right? He's not in the middle of his own problems. He's not self-absorbed. Pastor Pat will tell you that, that, that you know, we are counselors in that we are pastors. But one of our biggest hang-ups, why we're not the wonderful counselor, is because we have our own problems. Sometimes when you're sharing your sins, we can identify those because those are ours too, and we're in the middle of it, and we don't know how to get out. Just guess I'm... I don't know if you really want to know all this about your pastor, right? <laughs> I guess I'm kind of pulling it back. It's just, as, as a human, we can sympathize with you, but at times we're, we can identify too much. Right? Here, Jesus is not in the middle of his own problems. He's not self-absorbed. He hasn't been defeated by any of your problems. He's not in need of any help, so he is actually able to help. Can you imagine sitting with a counselor who can listen with you, who can identify with you, but is not self-absorbed about what he has to do next in the life? He's not overwhelmed by your problems. He's not tired from the day before. It is not too complex for him, and he sits there, and he knows exactly how to get out. Wonderful counts. And it opens him up to just being generous. Right? What keeps me from being generous? I'm self-absorbed. I have my own needs. I have my own financial commitments. Yeah, I'd love to give more, but we have to what? Take care of the Owens household too. 
Not him. He is able to help. He is willing to help. Hear his heart go out to you in verse 15 again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. The writer to Hebrews is arguing that because Jesus was totally tempted, yet remained totally godly, that now he can actually totally sympathize with you. He knows what you are going through. Now, at this point, it would be normal for you to be like, he knows what I'm going through? I mean, I get it that he was tempted, but he never sinned. I have. How can he sympathize with us? I, I, am, I have some of the responsibility for why my life is this way. How can he really sympathize with me if he isn't like with me in my sin? You're right. He's not like you. And that's actually really good news because in order for him to help us, he has to not be like us in regards to our sin. So Jesus does not sympathize with you in your sin. He's not like some lax counselor that you meet with for accountability who just nods his head after you tell him about how much you failed this week and he just gives you a pass because he's hoping that you don't ask him how bad he did in his week. Like, hmm, yeah, bro, that was a hard week, brother. Yeah, hmm, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, get back up next week. Let's, let's, mm-hmm. That's not where he's sympathizing with. He's sympathizing with us, it says here, in our weaknesses. Isn't it a blessing that that word weaknesses is in the plural? He sympathizes with you in your weaknesses, all of them. And isn't it wonderful that he doesn't despise you in your weaknesses. He knows you're vulnerable and he's moved to you by your weakness. He's inclined to want to help you because he personally knows the full force of sin and yet he never gave in. Think about it this way. Who knows the most about war? The one who, at the first sign of the enemy, throws up his white flag and runs? Or the one who goes through the entire war, pressing enemy lines, and goes all the way through onto victory? Who knows the most? It's obvious. The same way, who knows the most about temptation? The one who gives in after a five-second fight? Or the one who never gives in to temptation, but makes it all the way through temptation as it gets harder and it builds an intensity and you want to give in and you want to tap out, and yet he makes it all the way through the full force of that temptation and still stands. That's the Savior. That's the counselor we have. Jesus never gave in. And given that his mission was to defeat Satan... Can you just imagine the full force of temptation that was thrown at him? More than me and you would ever experience. And yet he can sympathize with you. Whether you're tempted to give in after five seconds or five minutes, he knows the limit because he's exceeded it, he's passed it, and never gave in. And so he is a high priest who can sympathize with you because he did not sin. Think about it this way. We can have help from this wonderful counselor who can say, I've been there. I didn't fall. I didn't succumb. And I know the way out. He is like us 
and he is unlike us. Faith family, this morning, whichever way you look at Jesus, he is there just for you to magnify and to say, what a wonderful counselor I have. He is your all-sufficient, wonderful counselor. Think about what Christ went through. Jesus felt the full force of being rejected by people he came to love. Think about it. Jesus felt the full force of being rejected by people he came to love. So he can help you with an estranged or wayward child that's rejecting your love. We're just getting real. He made it all the way through that. And so now as you experience what it's like to have an estranged child or a wayward child that wants to reject your love, he knows. He felt the full force of being tired, wearied, alone, without food, no place to lay his head. So he can sympathize with you when you're tired, weary, life's demands, no respite, low on daily provisions, wondering how you're going to pay for that next bill. He knows. He felt the full force of pain and suffering in his beating and crucifixion. So he can sympathize with you, Sarah, in your physical pain. He felt the full force of being betrayed and abandoned. And yet he called out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So he can sympathize with us when we've been betrayed, rejected, unjust actions, people thinking wrongly about us, friends or family. He can sympathize with you. We have a great high priest who is not dead, who has passed through the heavens, who's not self-absorbed in his own problems. He is in no need of his own rescue, and so he can actually be able and willing to rescue us. Jesus is the only one who can help, and we are in need of help. This morning, wherever you feel deficient, all of your deficiencies are supposed to just highlight all of His sufficiencies. Oh, I don't know how to do this. Oh, I'm stuck here. That's great. He is like you. He knows what the temptation is like, yet He's not without sin. He is sufficient for the moment. So how should you live? Question number two, how should we live in light of Jesus' great high priesthood? How should we live in light of Jesus' priesthood? I got two points for you. First, it's an appeal from verse 14, and then an offer in verse 16. All of those are possible because of this great high priest we have in verse 15. I just love the structure of this. There's an offer to you, there's an appeal to you, and both of those happen because of the truths that we just looked at in verse 15. It is because he's our great high priest that I can share with you an appeal in verse 14 and an offer for you in verse 16. First, the appeal. The appeal here is found in verse 14, and it is hold fast. Listen to verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Faith family, hold fast your confession. To hold fast means to 
adhere strongly to, to grip on tightly. Think of crossing the road with a little child. You grab onto their hand, they don't grab yours, and you hold on tight. You don't give up. And we are to hold fast to our confession. But if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, that is a very difficult thing to do. As being a Christian might make it hard for you at work, in your family, what it costs you, the things that you're supposed to say no to, your acceptance with the world, all of those might want you to let go of your confession to Christ. But we are to hold fast to our confession because there is one who is willing to help. There is one who is able to help. He is our high priest. He is the Son of God who has passed through the heavens. He is seated at the Father's right hand. He is making intercession for you. Big picture, Jesus Christ finished your redemption. These truths, these facts are all reasons for you to not let go, but to keep holding on. It provides strength because in Christ, your work of redemption is complete. Your salvation is accomplished. So what we're dealing with in Christianity, if you're here and you're our guest, we'd love to have you. If you're here as a non-Christian, it's important for you to know that Christians deal with facts, not fantasy. This is history. This is not just make-believe. And so there was a real infant with a real mother, with a real birth who lived a real sinless life. And this real sinless life resulted in a real sinless death where he really did rise from the dead with a real ascension where he is passed through the heavens, is seated down, and he intercedes your case before God the Father. Hold fast to your confession. He is your only help with God. Compared to the Old Testament where they were continually offering sacrifices, never able to sit down, always working, always trying to appraise God, Jesus, your high priest, has finished it, sit it down, it's paid in full, and the guarantee, your receipt that you can take home is his resurrection from the dead. Second, draw near, draw near. Look at verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hey, family, would you draw near to this great high priest? For there is one in Jesus who is able to help. What a wonderful offer for all of those who need help. And we are all in need of help. Just think about how staggering it is for a second that you can approach God in time of help. By way of comparison, think about Isaiah in the Old Testament. If you're new to Christianity, it's okay, just listen to these stories and just know that what we have, this offer of coming boldly, is unique to our time period because of what Christ has done. Before Christ, Isaiah in the Old Testament, when he just caught a glimpse of God's glory, what does he do? He falls down, right? He is scared stiff. When Ezekiel sees the glory of God, he falls on his face as though dead. When the Israelites meet Moses, who has come down from the mountain and his face is shining, they say, Moses, you got to cover your face. We can't look at you. Like, would you just put a veil on? Because you've been in the presence of God. Even the reflection was too much for them. 
Think about all the rigmarole that Aaron went through to enter into the Holy of Holies. And he only got to do that once a year after all kinds of work. And yet we are invited to draw near? And it's in the plural? Let us draw near? Not just the writer to Hebrews who's inspired, who might be an apostle. Not that these guys who have an inside circle, but the whole church can draw near? And how are we to draw near? It says we are to draw near, in verse 16, with confidence. Others' translations have it, let us draw near boldly. Friends, I don't know if you're like me, but this is exactly where Satan likes to come after me and just pile on. He attacks me with these thoughts. As soon as I sin, he comes after me and he wants to keep me from turning to this throne of grace. What does he do? He tells us, Josh, you can't go to Jesus yet. You got to put three to five days of good behavior between you and that sin you did. And once you clean yourself up a little bit, then, then you can go. You won't reek as bad. Or then he tells me, you know, I think you did that one. One too many times. You sure? You sure you're really a Christian? Because a real Christian wouldn't fall into that sin again. All of those are lies from the pit of hell. Satan is just casting dust in your eyes on your journey to heaven. Blocking your view of who he is. And it has been his tactic from the beginning. Right, faith family? Genesis 3, what does he do? He comes to Adam and Eve, and all he wants them to know is to discredit God's love and his goodness. Oh, if God really loved you, he'd let you eat from this one tree you're not supposed to. And because it worked with them, it is his tactic to this day to discredit God in your eyes. And to think, I don't have a high priest that's good for me. There's no benefit for, for me there. I'm too unfaithful. I'm too unworthy. Christian, go to Christ quickly with confidence. Jesus died on the cross for us. Jesus rose from the dead for us. He is able to help. He is willing to help. So come. Not with a whimper, but with confidence. And speak to the creator of the universe on his throne of what? Oh, yeah. Cover that word up. Is that really what you expected? Come to his throne of judgment. If it wasn't for Jesus being our high priest, it would be exactly that. But here, we have an extraordinary way of talking about God's throne. A throne. Power. Authority. Position. Privilege. Servants. And it is a throne of grace. My non-Christian friend or faith family, 
why would we want to be so cruel to ourselves in making an exception or depriving ourselves of this help when Jesus is gracious? Jesus, who offered himself as a single sacrifice for sins, sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Hebrews chapter 10. Do you feel like you have nothing to give this morning? Great! Jesus gave it all. Jesus did it all. That's the difference between Christianity and every other religion. It is done, not do. He did it. Do you have the weight of sin on your shoulders? Well, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is how you respond to the good news that you heard about this great high priest. You don't go cleaning yourself up. It's not by trying harder. It's not by asking saints to pray for you. Not by trying to get in touch with some inner spiritual reality. We respond to the gospel by repenting of our independence and our self-help mentality. What should you repent of this morning? Your independence and your self-help mentality. I can do it all myself. The only thing that stands between you and God is for you to admit, I am in need of help. Let me put it to you in the words of our text. The only thing required for you to receive grace and mercy is a time of need. Listen for it. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help when? In time of need. All you need is need. Do you have a time of need in your life right now? That's all you got to have to come to this throne and to draw near. Christ says, come. He'll meet you there. The prodigal son, when he made up his mind that it would be better to come back to his dad, the father goes running to him and meets him in the middle before he ever has to come back and knock on the door. Do not make an exception for yourself where Christ does not make an exception because of what you've done. Christ says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's universal. Come to me, all. But it's particular. Do you know that you are burdened, heavy laden, that you're laboring? If you do, you're willing to acknowledge that? Come. Put your faith in the one who is able to help. Put your faith in the one who is willing to help. He is the only one to give you help with God on the last day, which you will need. Faith family, this grace that is there at this throne is not just for your salvation. It's for your continuing progress in Christ. We call that sanctification. It's a big word, but it just means your continued growth to look like him. In Hebrews, the, he's encouraging Christians to come to the throne of grace in time of need. And the time of need in the book of Hebrews includes these things. Personal sin, temptation, suffering, shame, and ostracism for being a Christian. Does that sound like today? Do you have sin? Do you have temptation? Are you suffering? Are potential shame and ostracism part of your lot in life for naming Christ? 
It is impossible for me to think through your particular hour of need as we approach 2023. But the only thing that you need for you to find grace is a time of need. Don't be deceived. Christian, your need of grace will never end. You'll need it every step of the way. You never get beyond this. But don't neglect Him. Come. His supply of grace will never end. It's ongoing. Draw near to Him. Jesus is able to help. Jesus is willing to help. And He is your only help in time of need that you need in your relationship with God. So I'm going to silence for you to think about where you need help. And then we're going to stand and sing our uh, closing song, Come You, Come All You Unfaithful. Steve, whenever you feel ready.